Well, if you have your Bible with you one more time this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1052. If you're a guest with us today, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to the end of chapter 22. I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, the ultimate question. And I encourage you, as I uh, always do, to keep your Bible open. I'm going to be referring throughout the sermon to many passages in the Old Testament and many passages in the New Testament to give you a biblical theology, if you will, of the subject of the text and how the whole Bible reinforces and speaks to what Jesus is teaching us in this short passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 22, we'll begin reading in verse 41. And this is what the Word of God says. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. According to an article in the Daily Mail, mothers get asked approximately 288 questions by their little ones every day. As stated in the study of 1,000 mothers with children aged between 2 and 10, the average mom faces a new question from their children every 2 minutes and 36 seconds. While moms of 4-year-old girls field approximately 390 questions per day, averaging a question every 1 minute and 56 seconds. Seconds. The study found that 82% of children go to their mother first because, according to one fourth of the children polled, their father will just say, Go ask your mother. <laughs> this study also recorded some of the toughest questions that children ask their mothers Why is water wet? Where does the sky end? What are shadows made of? Why is the sky blue? And how do fish breathe underwater? As this study shows, life is full of questions. Should I change jobs? Where should I go to school? Whom should I marry? What career should I pursue? When should I retire? Regardless of our age or our experiences of life, all of us are faced with questions every single day, some more important than others. But the ultimate question that any of us could ever ask is, 
Who is Jesus Christ? At the end of a chapter filled with controversial questions, in which Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and Herodians, the Sadducees, and a representative of the Pharisees, Jesus reverses roles and begins to ask questions of his own. The Pharisees had asked Jesus about politics. The Sadducees asked Jesus about the afterlife. And the lawyer asked Jesus about the law. Now Jesus turns the tables and asks the Pharisees about theology. And specifically about the doctrine of Christ. Who is the Messiah? This is the ultimate question, friends. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the answer to this question has implications in this life and in the life to come. So follow along with me as we see how Jesus asks and answers this ultimate question. And you'll notice, first of all, in verses 41 and 42, a simple question. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. Mark, in his account, tells us that after irrefutably answering the three questions that the Jewish leaders had designed to trap Jesus, Jesus continued to teach in the temple. And Matthew records that while the Pharisees were still gathered together trying to figure out their next move against Jesus, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And by asking this question, Jesus directed the Pharisees to state their beliefs regarding the Jewish lineage of the Messiah and from where Christ would descend. And at the end of verse 42, the Pharisees give Jesus their answer to his question. And they simply say, the son of David. Now for the Pharisees, as well as many other Jews, the answer to Jesus' question was simple. The Messiah would descend from the lineage of David. The Messiah would be the son of David. And because they were convinced the Messiah was no more than a man, the only identity of the Messiah they took seriously was that he would be the son of David. And if you go back and you study the history of the Old Testament, you'll find that through the prophet Nathan, God made a promise to his servant David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, and verses 15 to 16, this is what the prophet Nathan said to David about God's promise. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Listen. Forever, the throne of his kingdom forever. Then in verses 15 and 16, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, speaking of David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
Do you hear the repeated language and the promise from God through the prophet Nathan to David? David, I am going to establish your kingdom. I am going to establish your throne forever, forever, an eternal throne. And so this promise from God could not have applied solely to Solomon, David's son. Yes, Solomon did build a house for God in the form of the temple, but his kingdom did not last forever, nor could any other descendant of David claim an everlasting throne. After Solomon's rule, the Davidic kingdom was divided and it's never been restored. And so after the declaration of this promise from Nathan to David by God, we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament the anticipation of the fulfillment of this promise that God made to David regarding his son. And you need look no further than the beginning of the book of Psalms. And in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8, we learn that the nations will be this king's heritage. And that the ends of the earth will be the son of David's possession. Solomon, in Psalm 72, says that this king will have dominion from sea to sea. And that all the kings of the earth will fall down before him. And that all the nations of the earth will serve the son of David. In Psalm 89, the psalmist repeatedly emphasizes God's covenant with David. And the fact that the Messiah would be the son of David. And in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Listen, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And do you know what the psalmist writes next after that statement and reminder of the promise of God to David? Selah. And if you've studied the Psalms with us, you know what that word means. Pause. Think about it. So stop, friends, and think about this promise. God is promising that he will establish forever the throne of David for all generations. Pause and think about it. The psalmist goes on, I found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And my steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. Do you hear that? Forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. Friends, over and over, the psalmist says that this promise of God to David regarding his son is an everlasting, eternal promise. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah declared the future fulfillment of this promise. And you know these verses well, but have you ever stopped and considered them in light of the context of Jesus' question to these religious leaders? In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, this is what Isaiah says. For to us, 
a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end to his government. There will be no end to the peace that he brings in his rule and reign. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. An everlasting kingdom of peace. An everlasting kingdom of God's righteous rule and reign. The prophet Jeremiah proclaimed that David's greater son will rule over this everlasting kingdom. And he will bring the wisdom and the justice and the righteousness and the security that we all long for. And friends, if the Holy Spirit is not making application to you this morning of the relevance of this passage of Scripture that we're studying today and all of its context throughout the whole Word of God, I will help bring that recognition. We are living in a day and time, everything flashing before us where there's no security, there's no peace, there's no wisdom in leadership, there's no righteous ruling and reigning. We can't even define what is evil. That's because there is only one person who can rule and reign and bring the security and the peace and the wisdom and the righteousness and the justice that every single one of our hearts and souls longs for. It's the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, that that's exactly what's going to happen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel, listen, Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And did you hear how Jeremiah began these verses? Behold, the days are coming. It's imminent, friends. It's right at the doorstep. How much more relevance do you need this morning? The prophet Ezekiel, he prophesied of the day when God's chosen people would no longer be divided. When they would all be gathered together from all over the world under the kingship of the son of David. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 to 25, this is what he said. Then say to them, says the Lord, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all 
all have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And since the Pharisees were experts in the law, and since they were experts in these and many other references of the Old Testament, there was nothing unusual about their answer. The Messiah is the son of David. They expected that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that the Messiah would restore David's throne to Israel, and that he would forcibly remove the Romans. That's what they expected. And as we've studied throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the son of David. He begins in Matthew chapter 1 with his genealogy of Jesus being the son of David. He moves on and reports repeatedly of Jesus frequently being hailed by groups of people as the son of David. And because the crowds attributed this title, son of David, to Jesus, and because Jesus refused to renounce this title, son of David, the Pharisees hated him. And in this simple question, and in the Pharisees' simple answer, Jesus sets the stage to confront them once and for all about his true identity. Friends, I want you to realize this morning that the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ will never make sense to you until you fully recognize and acknowledge who he is. And just as Jesus asked the Pharisees, so I ask you this morning, what do you think about Christ? Who is he? He is the son of David. We not only see a simple question. In verses 43 to 45, we see a stunning question. And this is what the Bible says. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son. Well, the Pharisees' answer to Jesus was correct. He is the son of David. It was simple, but it was incomplete. And notice carefully in these verses what Jesus does. He quotes Psalm 110 and verse 1. This psalm is the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. Some say that it is quoted or referred to 27 times in the New Testament. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110 in verse 1, and he asks the Pharisees another question. Jesus' response to the Pharisees was that if the Messiah, the Christ, is merely a man, the human son of David, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, 
saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Now look carefully at the text. And notice that Jesus declared at the outset that David was writing Psalm 110 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he penned it. And he uses the phrase, in the Spirit. It is identical to John's words in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 when he said that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And this phrase refers to being under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit told David what to write. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and he's saying to you and me, that what David wrote in Psalm 110 came from God. It came from the Holy Spirit. Now, every Jew recognized Psalm 110 as being written by David. And every Jew recognized that it was a messianic psalm, that it was referring to the coming Messiah. And many of them believed it was one of the greatest passages dealing with the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so as a result, the Pharisees had no disagreement with Jesus that David was speaking about the Messiah. This is important as the conversation goes on. And through the use of Psalm 110, Jesus was not only declaring the humanity of the Messiah, that he was the son of David. Jesus was also claiming the deity of the Messiah That he is the son of God. And you'll notice Psalm 110 verse 1 that Jesus quotes. He uses the Lord, the word Lord twice. The first Lord in the Hebrew of Psalm 110 is the word Yahweh. Yahweh. And the second Lord that he uses is a different word. It's the word Adonai. And so you could literally translate it this way. Yahweh said to David's Adonai. Yahweh said to David's Adonai. Additionally, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, David declared that Yahweh told the Messiah, look at the text, to sit at his right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The right hand was a place of honor. It was a place of co-equal rank and authority. It was a place of shared rule. And the word sit indicates a continuous sitting in this place of exaltation. And what Jesus is quoting to the Pharisees is that God said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the pen of David that he was going to bring the Messiah to a place of equality with himself in honor, in power, and in glory. That the son of David was going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. Furthermore, David declares, look at the text, the invincibility of this Messiah because he says that Yahweh will put the Messiah's enemies under his feet. This phrase, under your feet, is a picture of helpless subjection. That when a defeated enemy was brought before an ancient monarch, 
monarch, he was forced to prostrate himself and bow before him. And the king would get up out of his chair and take his foot and put it on the back of his neck as a sign of defeat and submission and humiliation. Look at the quote again. The Messiah is going to sit at the right hand of the throne of Yahweh. And Yahweh is going to make the Messiah invincible. And the Messiah is going to defeat every one of his enemies. And they are all going to bow before him under his foot in total defeat. And when you go on to study Psalm 110, you find that Yahweh promises the Messiah a host of faithful subjects. That he promises to appoint the Messiah as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that he declares that he and the Messiah will conquer and judge all of the nations together. One old Puritan commentator who was known for his work on Psalm 110 said this about this psalm. This psalm is one of the fullest and most compendious prophecies of the person and offices of Christ in the whole Old Testament. There are few, if any, of the articles of that creed which we all generally profess which are not plainly expressed or by most evident implication couched in this psalm. He believed that the psalm taught the doctrine of the Trinity, the incarnation, the sufferings of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the intercession of Christ, the communion of the saints with Christ, the last judgment, the remission of sins, and the life everlasting under the rule and reign of Christ. Psalm 110. It was no accident that Jesus quoted this psalm. And said, how can you say he is simply the son of David? He's more than that. He's the son of God. And friends, the gospel of Matthew is coming to a climax. Jesus will turn away from these enemies. And he will focus on his disciples. And then he will be arrested. And he will be crucified. And he will rise from the grave. And he will give last instructions to his disciples. And he will ascend back to heaven. And it's no coincidence that he quotes Psalm 110 at this point in the narrative. Because everything that he's going to teach them in the coming chapters points back to Psalm 110. For instance, in Matthew chapter 25 at the end of the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus teaches his disciples about the signs of his coming and his return, this is what he says in Matthew 25 verses 31 to 34. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's coming to bring final judgment, where he will separate sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers, and it will be a separation that will be forever, eternal. 
In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64, he says, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The right hand of power, the same right hand that the psalmist declared would take place. That the Messiah would be the Son of God. Now notice what Jesus does in verse 45 of the text. After referencing Psalm 110, Jesus asks his stunning question. If then David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? And with this question, Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to ponder Psalm 110 in relation to their simplistic answer. Really? That's all he is? He's just the son of David? His point to the Pharisees was that the son of David was too simple. That Jesus, the Messiah, is also the son of God. And this is the only answer to Jesus' question, friends. As God, Messiah is David's Lord. And as man, Messiah is David's son. He is both the root of David and the offspring of David. And Psalm 110 teaches us the deity and the humanity of the Messiah. He is David's Lord and he is David's son. And as the son of David... The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, that he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. That Jesus ate, that he drank, that he spit, that he felt pain, that he bled, and that he died. That he was human. He was God in the flesh. And friends, this is important to understanding the identity of Christ. He had to come in the flesh to identify with us so that he could die in our place on the cross. Tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, yet without sin. He is the son of David. And as the Son of God, Jesus shares with God the Father all of the attributes of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. The Bible says that He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the healer of the sick, the raiser of the dead, the forgiver of sin, the giver of eternal life, and the judge of the living and the dead. And where his people gather, he is there in their midst. And he needs no one to teach him anything because he knows everything that is in the heart of man. And all of his power and all of his authority and all that makes him God were on full display in his teaching and in his works for all to see. Over and over again. The New Testament pictures Jesus as both the son of David and the son of God. In the prologue to his gospel, John declares both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh, the humanity, the son of David, and he dwelt among us. 
And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. As of the only Son from the Father. Deity. Son of God. Full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, he begins his letter by recognizing and contrasting Christ's humanity and Christ's deity. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 and through 4, this is what he says. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was descended from David according to the flesh and he was declared, he was declared to be the Son of God. And he proved it through his resurrection from the dead. In one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture regarding Christ, Paul in great detail emphasizes the fact that Jesus is both man and God. In Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11, this is what he says. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humanity of Jesus. Now listen to the last three verses of this text. And you're going to hear Paul describe from the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and the relevance of his deity as it relates to today, this very hour, and the wars and the chaos that are going on in this world. Listen carefully to it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear that, friends? You've asked yourself this week, what's this world going to? What's happening in this world? Here's the simple answer based on Philippians chapter 2, and based on this text in Matthew chapter 22. This world is going to Jesus. And it is all a part of God's divine, sovereign plan for the universe. All the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he promised David that a king would come from his line. And everything since then has been hurling this world to that king. And this world is headed for a date with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign with all wisdom, with all righteousness, with all power, with all authority, and all of the evil, and Satan, and all of his demons, and all of the wickedness of this world will be subjected under his foot. Once and for all. And listen, on that day, as Paul says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you, do you understand what he is saying in that text, friends? It's not just that Christians will bow and say that Jesus is Lord. Everyone in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth will bow before this king. 
That's why Jesus can't just be merely a man. He has to be fully God. Because the whole world will be subject to him. And everything in it will be subject to him. To his young protege in the ministry, Paul issued a charge. Listen to his charge. He issued a charge to remember these truths. And would you this morning, Christian, hear this same charge? Why are you so anxious? Why are you fearful? Why are you worried? Don't you know where all this is headed? Remember this charge, 2 Timothy 2, 8. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul says, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And do you hear it? The humanity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. He's the offspring of David, his humanity. He's risen from the dead. He is God. Remember Jesus Christ. And I say to you, Christian, when you turn on the news tomorrow, remember Jesus Christ. Before you turn on the news tomorrow, remember Jesus Christ. Bow before his throne in humility and dependence. Feast on his word. Remember him in the midst of this. Now look at the text. With this stunning question, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, David would not have addressed a human descendant as Lord. He's God. And Pharisees, you should have known that. You should have known what David was saying. One commentator getting the weight of Jesus' words to the Pharisees, described the scene this way. He said, although Jesus was correcting the Pharisees' incomplete concept of who he was, he also seemed to be giving them a final invitation to believe. To believe in him. Pharisees, you've heard everything I've taught. Pharisees, you've seen all of my mighty works. You've checked the records in the temple. You know I come from the lineage of David. I am both man and God, and I'm standing right here before you. How can you not figure it out? Well, that's my question for you this morning. How can you not figure it out, friend? Is Jesus just a good person to you? Is he just a good moral teacher? Or is he more than that? I mean, the evidence is in. It's clear. You're sitting in a room that is full of people who have encountered the God-man and they've been changed. And their life's different. And their home's different. Everything about them's different. And a good man does that? No, only the God-man can do that. And the evidence is right in front of you. How can you not see it? Is it because you don't want to see it? 
You want to stay in your unbelief? You want to love your sin? You think you can ignore Jesus? And in the end, it'll all work out. I've shown you from the Bible this morning, friends. You cannot ignore Jesus. You have a date with him. You're going to stand before him face to face. How can you ignore him? Do you know that when you study the book of Acts, you find that Peter, the one who denied Christ, preached his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. You are not going to believe what he preached. Do you know what he preached? His very first sermon, you know what he preached? Psalm 110. The very psalm that Jesus quoted. And do you know how they responded to Peter preaching Psalm 110 in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 38? You don't? I'll read it to you so you'll know. I don't want you to wonder about it over lunch. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Do you hear that? Do you hear? There's, there's nothing vague about the Bible. It is crystal clear. And it is confrontational. And it is confronting you this morning in your unbelief. Listen to it again. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, son of David, son of God. Now listen. Listen to what happened after he finished his sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were convicted. They had been confronted by Christ and his true identity, and they knew it. What do we do? You know what they told him? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Turn from your sins and make your faith in Christ public by being baptized. And the Holy Spirit of God will come to live inside of you and change your life through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. What are we to do with Jesus? Repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin and follow Christ. The word of God has confronted all of us this morning. With the true identity of Jesus Christ. So I'll ask you the same question. That was asked. Of the people in Peter's day. What shall you do? What will you do this morning. With Christ. Well I imagine some of you are going to say. Man I wish he would hurry up and get done. So I can get out of here. And don't ask me to come back again. You'll deny him. You'll reject him. You'll refuse him, you'll walk away, and you'll stay in your unbelief. Some of you say, ah, I'm not sure I'm convinced. Maybe I'll come back next week and hear some more. Well, you come back next week. I promise you, you'll hear more. Come back. Come back. But some of you, some of you have been asking questions. Some of you in the quietness of your life have realized that you don't have answers. You're empty. And there's got to be more to it than what you've experienced. And I've shown you the answer this morning, friends. It's Christ. Christ is the answer. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. And your response 
is to repent and turn from your sins and follow him publicly and live for him and he'll change your life. Well, we see a simple question and a stunning question. Notice with me verse 46 and we see a silencing of all the questions. And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day? No one answered him a word. And they didn't even think about asking him another question. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were so blinded by their tradition, their man-made laws, their power, and their pride, they refused to believe the evidence that was in front of them. One commentator described the scene this way. He said, they came face to face with God and they rejected him and walked away. The Pharisees left Jesus' presence humiliated, speechless, and stunned. They were not convinced or convicted and they left unchanged. They remained in their unbelief and in the hardness of their hearts. But, but do you know what happens in Mark's gospel? When you read the end of this account of Mark's gospel, you know what Mark says? The throng, all the crowds that were gathered around. Can't you picture it there in the courts of the temple? Jesus dealing with these religious leaders. And they hear the conversation. And so all the common people start gathering around. And they're all surrounded by them. Mark says it was a throng of people. Do you know what Mark says? The throng did. They heard Jesus gladly. What a contrast. Stunned, remain in unbelief, or hearing Jesus gladly. Well, friends, what do you think of Christ? Is he the son of David? Is he fully man? Is he the son of God? Is he fully God? What do you think of his perfect, spotless, sinless life? What do you think of his sacrificial, atoning death on the cross for you? What do you think of his resurrection? What do you think of his ascension back to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for you this very moment? What do you think of the promise of his soon return in power and glory to rule and to reign and defeat evil and wickedness and all of his enemies forever. What do you think of Christ? Is he your savior? Have you confessed your sin and turned from it and trusted in what Christ did on the cross for you? Is he your savior? The only way he's your savior is if you've done what I just asked. Is he your Lord? You walking in obedience to him? Would you hear him gladly today? Or would you reject him? Life's full of questions. The ultimate question is, who is Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question has implications for your life now and your life to come. Come to Jesus today. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us Christ. And we thank you. We thank you, God, for the hope of your promises and for the hope of our soon returning King. And we pray today for those who don't know Christ that through the clarity of your word, God, they would be pierced to the heart and turned to Jesus. We pray for those living in sin who are not ready for the return of Christ, that you would use the power of this text in their lives today and draw them in repentance to you. And, oh God, we pray. We pray, as your word reminds us, that we would stay alert and watchful and think about the kind of people that we ought to be in light of the return of your son. Oh, how we long for the day when we will dwell under true wisdom, true righteousness, true justice, and eternal glory. Help us to live in light of that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.